welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life, about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis. And when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed life post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. Simply reading about all that today's guest has done for those living with dementia and their families left me exhausted. It also humbled me because, as far as I can see, she now devotes her time almost entirely to making life better for this huge group of often overlooked people through creating, discovering and making accessible a wide range of resources. In her Native America, she's been recognised for her work, hailed as a health hero by none other than Oprah Winfrey and championed as an architect for change by the former First Lady of California, Maria Shriver. She is Laurie LeBay and she joins me today all the way from her home in Minnesota from where, since walking away from a successful career in real estate in 2009, she has launched America's first radio station dedicated to dementia. Indeed, Alzheimer's Speaks is believed to have been the first dementia radio station in the world. Global first or not, Alzheimer's Speaks gives a voice to everyone, allowing people and companies throughout the world to share their business and educational resources, products and advice. While a dementia map provides a worldwide directory of blogs, relevant enterprises and events to which individuals and organisations can sign up to make their offerings available to a wider public. Laurie was instrumental in creating America's first dementia-friendly community in Watertown, Wisconsin in 2013. Three years later, she launched one of the country's first memory cafes in Roseville, Minnesota. Her webinar series, Dementia Chats, sees the real experts, those living with the condition, offering their invaluable advice. And just a few days ago, her children's book, Betty the Bald Chicken, co-authored with Scott Carlson, was published. As with all Laurie's dementia work, the book is inspired by her mother's 30-year struggle with Alzheimer's and her own caring role but it's not limited to dementia. Betty's story applies to virtually any situation in which someone finds themselves on the outside, struggling to fit in and not being understood. It teaches people of all ages that we have much more in common than sets us apart. We need to shift how we care for one another and ourselves from crisis to comfort, Laurie told Maria Shriver. We need to give hope and support to families and professionals alike through open conversations, shared life stories, and lessons learned. Dementia is not a disease of one, but of society. I couldn't agree more with that last statement. And so, Laurie LeBay, 
all those miles away in Minnesota, may I offer you a very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Oh, Pippa, I'm so excited to be here. I have listened to you for ages and your work is just remarkable. So I feel like we're kindred souls. So thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think we do have a lot in common, actually, don't we? I mean, for a start, both our mothers lived with dementia. So that's one huge bond. But I thought today it was a really lovely book, Betty the Bald Chicken. There's something very charming about it. Um, it's beautifully illustrated by Emily Lund. And it does have the feel of a children's book because of those delightful pictures. But actually, of course, it's it actually deals with, well, profound themes and principles. And I, I think it really, you know, it's at the heart of all that you do around dementia, those same principles. So can we just start with that as it's very recently published and is obviously dear to your heart? I think it started in a sort of keynote speech. Anyway, tell us how it all started, uh, Betty the Bald Chicken. Well, actually, it came to me in a dream one night about two in the morning, and all I could see and hear was this word Alzheimer's flashing across kind of on a screen, and then I'd see this bald chicken. And I was old enough to know that I need to get up and write it down or I'm not going back to sleep. So I wrote the story down and I've been using it as a keynote forever. And I have like rubber chickens and Mardi Gras necklaces with bald chickens on them. That Just I... give a brief synopsis of because I haven't really said what it's about and why it does have these very good principles. Just explain about the, the caring corral and the Sure. It's basically about a chicken who doesn't fit in anymore. And, you know, when I got the story, I thought it was all about Alzheimer's. But really, it is much more than that. It, it pertains to anyone who doesn't fit in. So it can be used for bullying, for divorce, for death, for any chronic illness. And it's about this chicken that, you know, had this loving community that she and family that she fit in well with. And then all of a sudden, she had a change and people were scared of her and they started she pushing bold. her away. Yeah. And it was um, just a frightening, frightening thing. And so she didn't feel like she fit in. So she goes on a walk and ends up taking this tumble off this big cliff and finds a whole other community she didn't know existed that just embraces her and loves her and tries to welcome her into their community and mm. they couldn't heal her baldness mm. but they could heal her heart mm, mm, mm. by just being part of that community mm. and it's a beautiful story of of the lessons that we have and at the very end Betty ends up in the hospital and the caring corral you know decides we have to run back up to the farmyard and tell all the other animals and let them know they have one last decision to make. Are they going to continue to pity and push Betty away like she didn't exist and didn't mean anything? Mm. Or are they going to come back into her life? And, mm. you know, in wrapping up, to me, it, it teaches us about the power of our decisions. A lot of times we push off the effect our decisions have on others that we know and others that we don't know. And, you know, our impact on one another is huge and we can always recorrect the ship. And we typically have all felt like Betty, you know, where we haven't yeah. fit in. So we know what that's like. Mm. We've typically all walked away from somebody in need, if we're honest. Mm, mm. And, and yet, especially with your group, I know they're part of the Caring Corral because they're listening and they want to learn. They want to mm. embrace differences mm. 
And so, you know, to me, you know, I'm hoping that Betty will be a reminder to all that we have a choice of who do we want to be and how do we want to be remembered in our life, you know, Mm -hmm. and the changes that we can make can be really, really simple. Just like with dementia, what a smile and eye contact can do, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't cost anything, doesn't really take any time. So just to make us look a little deeper in our lives and what I find fun with the story is we, you know, we have these questions in the back. Yes, I thought it was very good, actually. And the questions were there, you know, for the adults to think, you know, we're, we're helping the children, mm. which is true, you know, process this and have they ever felt like Betty and mm. those stories of not fitting in will come in and we can teach them maybe some skills and workarounds to avoid those things. But it also talks about what do you do to make yourself feel better? Maybe Mm. when you're down and out or when someone you know is struggling, what do you do? And I think the kids have beautiful lessons to teach us adults as well. Oh, definitely. Yes. And we, one of the things that you like, and I know I, you know, I like too, I often talk about the lessons that we older people can learn from young people and this wonderful sort of the bonds that exist between these intergenerational groups, you know, the very young and the very old and the very young are people with dementia. So it's great that you've you've got what is in effect children's book, but of course it's much more than that because it is it contains so many lessons for all of us. You talk about, which I loved actually, beautiful connections. And uh, I think a lot of what you and I do is all about connections, isn't it? Oh, correct. And another really great thing I don't think it was specifically in the book but the book brings it out a bit more you believe one of your beliefs is that people only remember three things in life Mm -hmm. and that is really I think important and it was life-changing for me in terms of how I ended up dealing you know with my mom and the three things are you know the tears the fears and the joy Mm. and the tears are typically as care partners, especially, but this also applies to people living with dementia, really anybody in the world at any phase of life, the tears are about the things that we feel we lost, the grief that we're feeling. And one of the lessons I learned in that process was you can't have great loss without first having great love. Yeah. And how lucky am I to feel this pain, you know, and Mm. that always kind of helped pull me out when I was swirling down. And then the fears are about all the things that could happen. You know, you can pick up a book and I'll pick on the 36 hour day for an example that lists all kinds of things that could happen with dementia. Mm. And a lot of times people think, oh, my gosh, this is all going to happen. you know, And, And they just get overwhelmed, not realizing that every person with dementia is different. Mm. And so we make all these plans. And I used to be, I mean, and I still am a planner, but I used to have 42 different plans of how am I going to work around everything? Bottom line, it was how am I going to stay in control? Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that's really what the focus was. Mm-hmm. And what I learned was that when I'm spending that much time focusing on planning and when a crisis actually hits, I'm going to replan again. I'm going to take everything I have within me and I'm going to make the best possible plan. So I tell people, 
you know, go ahead and do a plan. Do two if you if you really have to, <laughs> if you're going through kind of withdrawal of planning like I did initially. <laughs> but know that you're always going to replan when something comes up because you're going to be picking up new sources. When I ask people of those three things, the fears, the tears, and the joy, what do you want? Of course, everybody says joy. Mm. But the thing that people forget is joy can only be found or created in the moment. Yes, that was what really struck me. Mm. Yeah, and if we're busy focusing on the past or if we're busy worried about the future, Mm. we're going to miss those beautiful opportunities. And so that really helped me be more, and I hate the word person-centered, I like relationship-based better, but live in the moment. And I know for a long time living in the moment, people just thought it was kind of Mm foo-foo-y, but that really, to me, brought it home and said, boy, there's really a very, very good reason to live in the moment. Yes, and I think that's particularly apposite, you know, when you do have a relative who has dementia, a loved one, because really that's one of the things certainly for me, the people with dementia that I know have taught me. And that is Mm -hmm. the joy to be found in living in the moment. And you're so right, because most of us, our lives are so busy, we don't live in the moment anymore. We're always rushing somewhere else. Or we might be, as you say, you know, grieving for something past that's gone. But actually, why don't we just enjoy the moment? And then we will find those moments of joy. So I thought that was actually very optimistic and hopeful and profound, but you've touched on there your your mother and her dementia. So I think before we go too far into this interview, just talk to me about your mother and her dementia and how it first began to manifest itself. But really tell us a bit about your mum anyway, Laurie. Well, my mom was kind of little misorganizer. She was involved in everything and she loved to celebrate life. So mm. she was big at having parties and being, you know, in charge of the PTA and the church mm. choir and the this and the that and the hockey mom and Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. And everybody was always welcome at our house. We were kind of the hangout house and everyone could always talk to my mom. And I still hear that to this day from some friends, gosh, I wish my mom was like yours, Mm -hmm. you know, and you don't really realize how special your parent is sometimes because you live with them day in and day Mm -hmm. out. You think everyone has that. And so, you know, she was just very vivacious and very involved and supportive of whatever people were doing. And um, in her mid fifties, she started having symptoms. My mom and dad had a doctor that they went to for 40 years, Mm. and my mom's been gone since 2014. So this was like 40 years ago. And so back then, you know, no one was really talking about Alzheimer's or Mm. dementia, Mm. and the doctors really weren't educated in it. And so she would bring this up, and for 10 years, he kept telling her it was her hormones. Mm. And she would say, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones. (laughs) This is different. Mm, you know, mm. we talk about this stuff, you know, and it kept getting worse. And so it was things like um, she started pulling back from being social because she didn't want to mm. make a mistake. Mm. She knew she couldn't remember things or she couldn't remember names or she couldn't remember the order of how to do things. Mm. She pulled back from driving because that was getting confusing to her. And one time she got lost and it really scared her. She watched one channel on TV and only one channel. 
And it would drive my brothers and my dad crazy because mm. they'd want to watch the football game and mm. they'd go to turn the channel and she would just have a fit. Mm. But we figured out she was telling time by the TV. She couldn't read the clock or watch anymore. But she did know, and back then they didn't, um, I don't know if over there, but over here, they flip our TV anchors like pancakes, you know. So, But she knew who was on TV at news time, so she right. knew what time of day it was. it was. Yeah, amazing coping mechanisms that people find, don't they, to cover up. There really, there were so many, so many. And so she finally did get diagnosed, but that was after my dad got diagnosed with brain cancer. And then they said, oh, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old, don't let her out of your sight. Hmm. And by then they had moved up to the lake two and a half hours away from us and it was very scary, but she was very, my mom and dad were very attached to one another, two peas in a pod. So they didn't really do anything without the other, but that was exhausting for my dad though, too. So once they moved up to the lake and my, you know, my dad ended up with brain cancer, we maneuvered that situation for a while, but it got to the point for winters, we needed them to be back into the cities because it wasn't safe. And I'll just give you an example. My mom and dad were going to go out one winter at their lake home. Their garage was detached from the house and my mom slipped and fell. Mm. Now, my dad's in a weakened state. My mom's on the crown. My dad's trying to figure out how to get her up. And she, mm. she was a big lady. And so my dad goes into the garage and he's trying to figure out how to get her up. And he comes out with salt and sand and he starts sprinkling it around her because she's on ice. Mm. Like she's a tire and going to get traction, you know, and that, of course, that didn't work. So then my dad went back into the garage because he knew he couldn't go into the house because mom had lost her sense of time and she mm. would panic if he was mm. gone two seconds right. and she couldn't see him or hear him. So he was talking to her while he's in the garage so she wouldn't get scared. He comes out with a red sled and he puts it next to my mom and he rolls my mom on the sled and he pulls the sled Gosh. then up to the cabin. And then my mom was able to kind of crawl up the steps and get mm. into the house. And, you know, they stayed put. So it was a very scary situation. Yeah, very. Mm. I didn't hear that story till August. And I called them three to four times a day checking in. But they knew not to tell us that story because mm. we wouldn't want them living up there alone. And it kind of came out as a fluke. Yes. And so then my dad ended up, his disease progressed. And one day he went down the steps instead of the elevator and he fell two flights of steps right. and could never move back home independently. So he ended up moving into a nursing home. Right. The plan was always for my mom to come live with me and my family, which she did for a couple of weeks. And at this time, you know, my mom wouldn't know if she looked out the window, if she should put flip flops on or mm. her winter boots. Mm. And she woke up and she said, I want to move into the nursing home. And my jaw just dropped like mm. nobody wants to move into a nursing home. Mm. And I said, why? And she said, We've been together 49 and a half years oh, and I'm gosh. not leaving them now. How she remembered that, I don't know, but I made that happen. So she ended up moving into the nursing home, but not with my dad. That's where they wanted to put her. And I mm. said, no, she does not need to watch him die. That would just be terrifying. So I said, I want her on the highest functioning floor because she was still very social. Mm. And I said, I want her to have one meal 
and on her floor with her group. Mm. And then the rest of the time and in one activity too, one meal, one activity on her floor. And then the rest of the time I would bring her up to be with dad. And mm. I had, you know, I was selling real estate. I could be very flexible with my schedule because mm. she couldn't maneuver up to another floor. Mm. And that worked really well. When my dad died, she was totally acclimated and she lived there 14 years mm. in the nursing home. Mm. And I think she lived in there because she really felt part of the community. She felt at home um, there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so it was a difficult experience in many ways. You know, nobody wants to put their loved one in a nursing home, especially when most of us say we're never going to do that. But easier when that loved one actually says herself, I want to go and live in a nurse. Much easier. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Mm. But there were so many beautiful lessons. And as her disease progressed, I learned to communicate differently. I learned to look for different things. I learned to put my phone and back then my pager down and know that the world was still going to turn without me and that I could be present. It's funny how we are um, expendable, isn't it? When we, yeah. <laughs> we seem to think that we all do that, don't we? You know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And actually, you know, the world still revolves when you don't. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you know, she really taught me, you know, about being present. Like I could now sit on the couch next to her and maybe just hold hands and not yes. say a word. Mm -hmm. But my mom was like the safest place I could go if I was having trouble. I, you know, I could say anything to her and she was accepting of it. And that wasn't all the time during the disease. There were times like I never did tell my mom that I got divorced because mm. that would have broke her heart because she mm. loved Tom and she never mm. would have understood that. But in so many other ways, she was just so, mm. Mm. all her judgment had gone. And yet that supportive soul that I knew all my life was still there. That's it could amazing, give me so actually, much comfort. Because I remember, and I've spoken to other people, and I think when big things happened in my life, after my mum developed dementia and could no longer really telephone and was in her nursing home and was in, you know, a poor state, really. I would always want to go and tell my mum something. And I'd actually even almost reach for the phone and then think, I can't. And that's that terrible sort of in-between phase when the person is still physically alive and on this mm -hmm. earth, but has actually gone because... You know, there was no way I could pick up a phone and talk to her. I couldn't. You know, she'd gone. She'd gone for my life, and yet she was still alive in a nursing home 40 miles away. It's just such a difficult, bizarre, odd, sad time. Unlike you, I didn't have that being able to just go and tell her things and sit with her. I could sit with her, but I never quite knew what to do. And that's one of the things that I have learned too late I wish I just really simple things like just done her fingernails or something. I don't know why I didn't think of that. But we're not told that. We're not taught that. No. That was one of the things we learned. Like I brought a little bottle of lotion and I mm. would massage mm. her hands or, or mm. her arms or feet or whatever. My daughter never went up there without fingernail polish and she did mm. grandma's fingernail polish. Mm. And those things are so intimate and they don't mm. need words. No. You know, it, you're just exchanging your presence with one another. And there's mm. this, this calmness and this love mm. that just mm. exists. Mm. And in learning to take the time to still soak all that in instead mm. of being so busy sometimes with our to-do lists. Quite, quite. So your mom died in 2014. 
But mm-hmm. you spoke about divorcing Tom then. I think, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but it was in 2009 when you divorced Tom. And I didn't know how old your daughter was then, but you made this pretty momentous decision looking back, didn't you, to give up real estate and go into the dementia sector, as it were. Yeah, my daughter was 18 at the time. And, you know, I blew up her life by getting divorced and <laughs> her dad's and, and everything. And yet, um, my goal was for us to live peacefully together. But through real estate, you know, and I had done that for 25 years, I worked in the senior market before anyone knew there was a senior market. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, because you already you'd identified that, in fact, there wasn't a senior market or what we would call a property market for older people. I mean, actually, the senior market is a much nicer way of putting it <laughs> than a property market for the elderly. You know, this great big blob, as everybody seems to refer to over here as the elderly. You know, you suddenly have to fit into this definition, whatever the elderly is. But yeah, you'd already identified that, hadn't you? It was so blatant to me, you know, mm. that people weren't listening to them. And I did a lot of new construction. And one of the things that blew me away was people would come in and say, I want a rambler, which is a a ranch or a one-level home here. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we were building two stories or Mm multi-levels. And people would say, you know, we really want a rambler, but Mm -hmm. we know they don't know how to build them anymore. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's Mm -hmm. not the point. They're just more expensive. And so they're building things that are more economical. Mm -hmm. Or building upwards rather than taking the land. You know, and so that was a, a big slap in the face. And so for me to pay attention to. And so it took me two and a half years to talk the builder I was working with to build a rambler and put it in what we do this like spring tour. And it was the first of its kind. And I mean, we just got mobbed with people Mm. and it wasn't perfect and it wasn't meant to be perfect. But the next fall, we used to do them spring and fall. There were like 21 ramblers Mm. then. It's just little things, paying Mm. attention Mm. or realizing Mm. that a person wants to move, but especially with our seniors and our elders, they don't want to be a burden and they don't yeah. want to lose their independence. Yeah. And they looked, if they moved into a community type setting, that they would lose their independence, not realizing those are created to give them greater independence, mm. give them greater you know, abilities to socialize. And, mm. and they don't realize how cut off they've become sometimes in their home. And yes. You know, the kids would look at it that I don't want to get in a fight if I bring up that the house isn't being maintained or Mm, maybe they should mm. do a move. Very delicate, those sort of times. Yes. Yeah. And if they agree with me, they didn't have the time to do anything. So everybody sat with their lips zipped. And then that Mm. just really put the person in danger. Mm. You know, bottom line. This comes um, back to your point that quote I read from you, actually, where you say that it's, you know, this is a disease, not of just one, but of society, because in a way, a lot of things around dementia, in fact, around all sorts of things, whether it be you know, disability or... It is really about society's view of it, isn't it? An attitude towards it. And why do we have a view that you don't want to go into a nursing home or you don't want to move to somewhere that you see, you wrongly perceive, is going to take away your independence? And in fact, as you've just said, Laurie, in a lot of ways, it actually helps you to maintain your independence. And it's so much about the communication of what is on offer is also lacking. Not just what is on offer, but the language and the communication around it and the perception of it. 
Oh, exactly. And getting to know people's stories, you know, taking yeah. time instead mm-hmm. of everything being this cookie cutter process in our services. One of the reasons I got into this was because senior housing then encouraged me to because they saw the work that I was doing within the seniors. But then I started talking about mom's Mm. disease as well. Mm. And they're like, you're about hope and joy. And, Mm. you know, you're not about doom and gloom and give me your money. And so that's really what made me decide to, you know, make a change. And I thought there's got to be more families like us. And there has to be more resources, products, and tools out there. There just has to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I really stepped into this, I was like shocked how many things are available, but nobody knows they're there. Oh, I remember feeling exactly the same. But, you know, we do have quite a similar story because I think we were both prompted by our own mother's experiences and then decided to just, in my case, write a blog or write a lot of articles in national papers, which is how I started, and then develop a blog. and, And then you... Exactly that. I used to write a lot about the fact that I would meet amazing people doing incredible things in the dementia sector. And it's like, why doesn't anybody know this? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. You know, over here, what I found, you know, when I stepped in, I was kind of shocked at the separation between nonprofit and for profit and government mm. and the different silos, which mm. doesn't help. But the public doesn't know those things even exist. Whether it's public, private, for profit, it doesn't matter. They just don't know, do they, that any of it exists? Well, you know, I had a funny story. I don't know if you're probably familiar with Mark Wartman, who used to run the Alzheimer's Disease International as the executive director. Yes, absolutely. Mark Wartman, yes. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And I, I used to talk with him a lot. And I remember calling him up one day and I go, Mark, I think I have to move. I think I have to leave this country to do the work I want to do. And he said, well, why? And I said, they don't get it over here. They're not collaborative. I don't understand. I feel like I'm just scratching bark off a tree, you know, trying to get people Mm. to come down and join me, you know, kind of play in the playground and be nice. And, Mm. And he just started laughing. And I said, Mark, I am serious. This isn't funny. Mm. And he said, you really don't know why that is, do you? And I said, no, please enlighten me, you know. Mm. And he said, Lori, your country was created because they left over here to go over there and start something that, you know, they owned. It was all about independence. It wasn't about the greater good. Oh, I see. Okay, that's what he means. And that made for everything to be to be branded as individuals. And he says, that's why you've got some of those silos so strong over there. And that made perfect sense to me. And to me, you know, that needs to be broken down. And I think COVID has helped with that a little bit because Mm. budgets have been cut, staff have been cut, and companies are starting to realize and let go that they can't do it all. And they're better off serving their client by giving them support services that might not be putting dollars in their pocket, but they're making the life better for their clients. Mm, mm. And, you know, when you, when you do that, when you help somebody like that, to me, you get a client for life. When you're supporting all of their life, when you can see their needs and you're willing to say, hey, these guys can help you here and these guys can help you here, you know, that's just good for everybody. And I think it's sad that we have a lot of organizations that still feel 
they're a one-stop shop and they've got all the answers. And none of us will ever have all the answers because new things are being developed all the time. Mm, that's so true. And I think because you and I both speak to so many different people in a way we were like sort of holding pens of all these different organizations, views, opinions, uh, you know, resources, skills. And one of the things that all the people that have done very well or are doing very well in their roles are people who do have this very collaborative approach in this sector. I'm thinking, you know, of Kate Lee, who is now the chief executive of the Alzheimer's Society over here. And one of the things that she's very strong on is, and it's just such a breath of fresh air to hear somebody like the chief executive of our biggest Alzheimer's charity saying, well, she said actually to me, one of the silver linings of the pandemic, which is just what you're saying, is that the charity sector were kind of looking around side eye a bit at the beginning thinking, oh golly, which of us is gonna fall first? in the pandemic and actually mm -hmm. we, it then very quickly changed from actually we're all in this together faced yep. with a massive enemy as it were like the pandemic actually they all wanted to come together and she has a great belief in you know trying to take best practice collaborate see what each can do for the other in terms of organizations and and I thought yeah how nice to hear that when so often it is everybody looking out for themselves or thinking that they know better. And in fact, all they're doing is reinventing the wheel. Oh, that is so true. You know, um, Dave Wiedrich and I, Dave has the, the memory cafe directory for six different countries. This is a very interesting conversation between the two of us, but tell everybody, I mean, I've gone through it really in the intro a bit, but 2009, I believe it was or around that time that you set up Alzheimer's Speaks, which is, you know, dementia radio, but it is much more than that. And within that now you have the, the map with all its resources. You have the, just explain in your words a little bit about, you know, what you've set up over the years and then the philosophy of it all that sits behind it all. Well, when I stepped in and I created Alzheimer's Speaks, one, I never really saw it as mine. I just saw it as bigger than that. And two, I wanted to take an approach using multimedia. I thought we were in an era where people learn differently. There was audio and video that we really weren't tapping into. And I really wanted to raise the voice of those that hadn't been heard. But you had no background in this, did you? No, no. You know, when you're in it, you can see it so clearly where the mm. holes are. And I just followed the holes, you know, and tried to plug them and tried to bring people together because, you know, those holes, you can fall through them and get mm, lost mm, and mm. depressed. Both the person with dementia and those caring for mm. them. And so let's make a smooth platform for people to walk and find what they need. So I started with a blog and um, I was shocked that people around the world resonated. You know, at that time I was writing about our personal stories. Yeah, it's exactly the same for me. Yeah. And then you get this amazing response and you think, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, this this is huge. This it's is global. such a niche. Mm, yeah. Mm. And I always knew that, but you felt it at mm, a whole different exactly. level. Exactly the same for me. Mm. Yeah. And then I decided to launch Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. It's a massive decision, though. I mean, it's a massive thing to do. It's a massive leap from a blog to a radio station. Yeah, well, you know, I don't own the radio station. I just do it on Blog Talk Radio. I didn't mm. have much of a budget. For $39, I could talk two hours 
a day if I wanted to. And I started out with a free one before, before even mm, that. Mm. And, you know, I could hook up with people around the world. I wanted mm. to make sure that people with dementia were included, mm. families. And then again, researchers. And then there's so many varieties of businesses and mm. authors and movie directors. And I mean, the list is endless. Well, yes, it's like my podcast, isn't it, I suppose? Yes. Yep, it really is. But over here, they weren't using the word podcast back then. And so that's why it was called radio. It's called mm. Blog Talk Radio is the platform that I use. Mm, mm. And then from there, I went on to create Dementia Chats. And Dementia Chats, I've been told, is one of the first of its kind as well, where I facilitate a conversation with people living with dementia mm. and they pick the topics and, you know, mm. we've gone back and forth of, well, let's plan. And then, you know, we can know what we're going to talk about. And every time we would get together, the topic would change because something <laughs> came up in the group. So we just get together uh, like a half an hour before talk offline. And then I push the record button and all these variety of opinions come together and they share their experiences with all different types of dementias and they're very powerful. And, mm. you know, all the radio shows, all the dementia chats are free. Then I started a thing called Dementia Quick Tips, which I need to do more of. I think I only probably have around a dozen out there. But those were lessons I learned mm. on my journey mm. as a care partner. And then we started Dementia in the Arts a couple of years ago during the pandemic. And that is where I interview people with dementia they share their artwork and what they get out of it. And that is so powerful. It's just, mm. and that really is a stigma buster. There's information on creating dementia-friendly communities. There's information on memory cafes. There's a poetry section where a lot of people submit their poems. And then we have, of course, Dementia Map, which mm. is a global resource directory, which is something I wanted from day one that my mom was showing symptoms. I wanted mm. to know where are the services, products, and tools. And so Dave Wiedrich is my partner on that. And he has the Memory Cafe's directory for six countries. And so he had called me up and said, you know, Lori, what do you think about doing this? You're always talking about it on the radio. Why don't we do it? And I had mm. just been working with another group on it for two and a half years and it just didn't go where I wanted it to go and we ended up parting ways and I said Dave I don't know if I have it in me and he's like just tell me just tell me you know your vision and I said okay I'm gonna be honest I'll tell you my vision but if you can't be in 110 percent I can't do it mm. and he said oh my gosh this makes so much sense you're right why hasn't anyone done this before and basically, we've created the site Dementia Map. It's a resource directory. It has three different plans. So there's a free plan. So anybody who has, you know, a service product or tool can be listed. I mean, we, we of course, bet them to make sure that we don't have scammers and stuff mm, on there. Mm. But anybody can be on there for free. And then we have two plans, a pro and a featured, that give you more exposure and stuff. Mm. We have a calendar of events on there, which can have free, most of them are free events, but sometimes there'll be some for-fee events on there. Uh, we have a blog that is growing. We have a um, glossary of terms because you don't know what you don't know till you, mm, you know, mm, find absolutely. out you don't know it. And, you know, we just wanted something that was easy access. And, and I actually fought with myself over doing this earlier. I always had lots of resources on my site. 
Mm. It wasn't as pretty as Dave's a great techie guy and has laid Mm. this out really wonderfully. But I kind of had in my own mind this mentality of, I don't want to be a one shop stop. I don't want people to think I know it all, you know, or that I believe that because I, I don't think that's healthy. And I also know that there's too much stuff being created. To be honest, we have more small and mid-sized companies on here. And I think a lot of that has to do with larger companies think that they have all the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. And like I tell them, we would not have, and this goes especially over here in the U.S., we would not have memory cafes or dementia-friendly communities if we weren't talking with people out of our country because those were not our concepts and some mm. people are shocked because, mm. you know, we're kind of mm. taught we start everything mm. here, <laughs> you know. Mm. It's very interesting for me actually talking to you as an American because I must admit that's slightly the impression, more than slightly, it is the impression that I've had in when I've done research early on when I really first got into it was looking around and I realised that Japan had some really interesting things going on because, of course, they're the oldest population in the world and so they were having to start doing things and recognizing dementia sort of before anybody else I think they've been you know, slightly overtaken in some ways but that was interesting and then places like Sweden have their um, community farms and things and yeah various places and then America was sort of yeah lagging behind a bit and it is ironic mm-hmm. given that it's America and America is the country known for its groundbreaking approach to things such an interesting point you made as well and you made it in your list of learnings that you sent me you know about what you know now was this the way that the bigger organizations I don't know if we're sort of unfairly targeting the bigger organizations but the way they felt that they they almost owned the families and they owned the knowledge and they it wasn't that they knew it all but it was like what they knew was enough sort of thing and again when you said you were worried about having everything on your site because you felt that was almost a little bit arrogant to think that you might know everything and you knew you didn't know everything. I mean, nobody knows everything there is to know around dementia. But in fact, what you're doing is providing a platform that will be like a hub for everybody to put into, you know, to partake in and then for people to come to be able to to use the resources within it. So lots of different providers come and put their names there and you're a, a signposting hub, aren't you, really? I mean, it's not that you know, but that's what yeah. people want. They want one place to go to. I hear that such a lot over here. Yeah, and the other thing that we did with the site was nobody has to create an account, so nobody has to give any personal information, which, again, goes against all the Google gods and you know the data collectors out there. But we wanted to be respectful. We don't have any moving parts because we know that's distracting. Mm. You know, we've used Mm. larger prints. Mm. We Mm. have Mm. four Mm. set buckets that will never, ever move because that's one of the big complaints with, with, you know, any larger company. The tech people aren't always connected to who they're serving. Yeah. And they want to use the latest and greatest things, you know, Mm. and that doesn't always meet your clientele. But I think it's just really important for people to feel welcomed. Like we wanted people living with dementia and families who a lot of times don't see themselves as a resource, Mm. but, you know, they may have a YouTube channel or a blog Mm. or a podcast or a support group. You know, we want that information there. They're, They're in the trenches. They're one of the richest sources out there. And you know, when you were talking about the larger organization sometimes not being 
is friendly or wanting to share. I think, again, when it comes to support group, when I first started like the memory cafes over here, there was a big pushback. Like we're not referring anybody to you. Those are our people. And it was various organizations, but that Mm -hmm. was just the mentality that was grown. And I'm like, None of us own these people. When you say those are our people, who are they talking about as our people? Any member of a support group. And it took us a long time to be able to get any referrals. Well, the people with dementia from their families, the actual people that needed your resources. Exactly. Oh, right. So they felt they kind of owned them. Yeah, well, if they went to yours, then they wouldn't come to ours. And it's like, that that's not how it works, guys. Mm, like a sort of competition, a market. Mm. Yeah, that's not how it works at all. And, mm. you know, a lot of them want more than one group to go to. And they're looking for the best fit. Kind of like high school. You got all these little niches and stuff. And, and what group are you going to fit in? And as the disease progresses, needs are going to change. So even like with my memory cafe, we had people driving an hour one way just to get to us in Mm. in the beginning. And people said, gosh, it would be nice if we had one in our area. Mm. I said, Mm. I'm more than glad to help you get started, Started. you know. Mm -hmm. And people are like, why would you do that? And I'm like, because it's a need. Mm. You know, Mm. we have to listen to the people that we serve and not Mm. just get you know, locked into our little square box. Do you do that quite a bit? Or I'm thinking of this because I'm thinking of, you know, you have an enormous country with all your different states and they are very different, aren't they? I mean, anyway, Mm -hmm. has it begun to replicate around the different states? You know, things like your memory cafes, which you say were kind of like the first over there. And how's that working? Yeah, we have we have quite a few memory cafes here in, you know, like Massachusetts is a smaller state, but it has a ton of them. And they're all a little bit different. Like with Mm. mine, I had to tweak it because we don't have budgets. We don't have government Mm. funding for these types of things. And so everything was voluntary. So Mm. with my memory cafe, we really don't have programming. We started that in the beginning. And then people said, you know, we have a lot of other resources in the community that has educational programs. Can you just tell us where that stuff is? Because we just really like to talk with our peers. Yeah, come along, have a coffee, and literally like a cafe, just talk. Mm. Yep, and we we laugh and we cry together, and we hear that the you know, cat got sick and somebody got a flat tire and they went to one of their kids' dance recitals, grandkids. I mean, we hear about it all, and dementia comes up when appropriate, but it's not the main focus. Might want to get and, away from dementia. Mm. Yeah. And people say it's their lifeline and they they make these strong, strong bonds. So I do a lot of um, mentoring around the country. And it's funny because one of the things that I hear repeatedly is uh, I'll have somebody call me and I'll never forget this one gal she called and she's like, you know, I'm just doing research for our group and we want to do a memory cafe. And, and I said, okay. And we step her through a bunch of stuff. And, and she's like, gosh, I wish I could be involved. And I said, well, why can't you? And she says, well, I'm not a nurse or a social worker. And I said, they don't want a medical model. They have enough medical stuff. They really just want peers that understand because family and friends have stepped back. Mm. And I said, so you go back to your group and I'm more than glad to talk to all of them on why this is really important Mm. and not to overwhelm because sometimes we get so many people that want to be part. All of a sudden we have eight people that want to be part 
and our group is 15 people, well, now we're overwhelming them. You know, so I always say have two leaders in your group, because then if one has an appointment or is sick, the other one will be able to maintain the consistency. But when you're flipping or rotating facilitators, that loses that sense of community and what's going on with everything. And so there's lots of little things that I've learned over time. And ours that we do are smaller. I know like Norm's McNamara, he has huge rooms and tons of round tables mm. and things. Sorry, that's Norman McNamara, isn't it? The chap over here yep. did the Purple Angels. Exactly, mm. exactly. He's just amazing. He's the one that got me connected with the memory cafes and I'm a right. Purple Ambassador as well. I mean, he's just fabulous what all he's done mm. Mm. for this disease. Mm. Mm. Extraordinary. So... If you were, this is a bit of an unfair question to spring on you, really, but we're coming to the end now. And of all the things that you've learned and you've had this very personal experience with your own mum, and as you and I both know and everybody out there listening knows probably, at that point you're just getting from day to day, you're just getting through it. You're not really thinking about what else you might be able to do in the way of helping other people. You're just getting through your own experiences. But through that at a personal level and through everything you've done subsequently through the Alzheimer's Speaks, through the Memory Cafes, through the Dementia Chats, through you've actually helped, which we haven't even talked about, but you helped on a film, didn't you, that was to do Mm -hmm. with dementia, helped launch that film, which has changed its name. It's now called, remind me, Laurie. A Timeless Love. A Timeless Love, yes, it had a different title, but anyway, it's A Timeless Love now, and that's a film which is out or coming out. It's been out, but you can only see it through a sponsor. It's not available to download or anything. Yeah, you help with that. You All these things are now, you know, coming right up to date with your Betty the Bald Chicken, the book. Mm -hmm. What are the two big standout sort of learnings for you throughout all this? What are the biggest themes that run through everything that you've done I would say share your story. Mm. It's important. Mm. You know, everything I do is about sharing stories on my story, or now it's so many other stories. Mm. And that gives people hope. It makes people feel connected. It Mm. empowers them to say, I have a story to tell too, because everyone's story is important. And if we don't tell our stories, if we don't share them, we're never going to get the services we deserve. True, true. Because people aren't going to know the needs. And the Mm. needs, Mm. as much as they vary, they also overlap. The other Mm. thing I would say is don't judge another on how they care. Yeah, You don't know their situation. You don't know their relationships. And a lot of times out there, people think, well, and sometimes they get really nasty too. Mm. Mm. Um, Mm. Well, you don't act how my husband acts or Mm. you don't act Mm. like my mother. Mm. And so you must not have it. And this happens a lot, especially to our big advocates like Norms and Kate and so many Mm. of the others Mm. out there. Kate Swaffer, you're thinking, are you? Yep. Mm. Yep. Yes, no, I've heard that. And lots of people that I know have been very upset. I won't name them, but yes, where people have said, well, you can't have dementia because you're still functioning at such a high level. What they don't know, of course, is that they might or even come on my podcast or something. Or I mean, I'm not saying that because I don't want to identify anybody. So it actually hasn't happened with anybody on my podcast, but you know, talk at a, an event, a conference, and then really they might be wiped out for the next two or three days. 
because they are giving yeah. so much to be able to talk for an hour. This is what people don't realise. Or they might have a different type of dementia. You know, it's a very exactly. individual disease and it's different for each person, isn't it? Well, th thank you very much. I'm, I'm even more impressed by you now because for me to fling out those questions was a bit unfair at the end, but you answered them very well. And I think that's so true that we must all share our stories. It's what you and I started off doing. And as I often say to people, they're very personal, they're unique, they're individual, but they're universal, aren't they, in a way, because they do share common threads. And the other thing is, yes, never to judge. I remember once somebody who I did meet through the dementia sector, although she's now moving on to all sorts of things, she does an incredible one, but she said, you know, you never know, ever, what's going on in somebody else's life. They may seem to have so much going for them, but you just don't know. Oh, exactly. And I've always remembered that because whenever I meet somebody, it's a good little sort of just step back, say to yourself, you just don't know. And if that person's a bit abrupt, they probably have a reason or, you know, you just don't know. So I think that was... So thank you very much. And yes, I think we are a bit kindred spirits, but I think you've done a lot, a lot more than me. I, I just write and commentate, really, but you've actually rolled up your sleeves and done an awful lot. So thank you from all of us for that. Well, please don't put yourself down for just writing and your podcast. I mean, my gosh, you are doing such amazing work, Pippa. You are known all over the world. And you really, the other thing I was going to say, uh, yes for two, but the third one is to listen. And you listen so well and you pull information out. You're eager to learn. And that's where we all have to go. We have to listen to people's stories and not all think, well, we're the expert. The people in the trenches are the expert, guys. Mm. No one is ever going to tell me different. Mm. You know, they're living and breathing this every single day yeah. and they have so much to offer yeah. and teach us. And when we pull in all levels, you know, when we're truly inclusive, we can make sustainable change so much faster, so much easier and so much better. So thank you for allowing me to be on your show. No, it's wonderful. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was lovely talking to Laurie. She and I have so much in common, from our mum's dementia to our blogs and what we've done with our own experiences. Meeting people like Laurie is very much why I do what I do. Her belief that people only remember three things in life, tears, fears and joy, stopped me in my tracks and made me think, really think about my own way of viewing the world. Her maxim that you don't know what you don't know is so true, not just of dementia, but of so many other aspects of life. And her credo in sharing stories is, of course, very much mine. She has done such a lot and made the lives of countless people around the world very much better. You can find her Alzheimer's Speaks website at alzheimerspeaks.com and through it you can discover Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, Dementia Chats with Experts Living with the Condition, the Global Dementia Map, free educational resources, lists of her programmes and events from memory cafes to stories that change lives, more about the film A Timeless Love which we mentioned and links enabling you to buy her charmingly simple yet profound book Betty the Bored Chicken. The lists go on and on. I encourage you to look at her fabulous compendium of a site, alzheimersspeaks.com.
And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.